Chapter Thirty. In here, forlorn and lost, I tread, with fainting steps and slow, where wilds immeasurably spread, seem lengthening as I go. The night had set in dark and chilling, as Francis Wharton, with a beating heart but light step, moved through the little garden that lay behind the farmhouse which had been her brother's prison, and took her way to the foot of the mountain, where she had seen the figure of him she supposed to be the peddler. It was still early, but the darkness and the dreary nature of a November evening would, at any other moment, or with less inducement to exertion, have driven her back in terror to the circle she had left. Without pausing to reflect, however, she flew over the ground with a rapidity that seemed to bid defiance to all impediments, nor stopped even to breathe until she had gone half the distance to the rock that she had marked, as the spot where Birch made his appearance on that very morning. The good treatment of their women is the surest evidence that a people can give of their civilization, and there is no nation which has more to boast of it in this respect than the Americans. Francis felt but little apprehension from the orderly and quiet troops who were taking their evening's repast on the side of the highway, opposite to the field through which she was flying. They were her countrymen, and she knew that her sex would be respected by the eastern militia, who composed this body. But in the volatile and reckless character of the southern horse, she had less confidence. Outrages of any description were seldom committed by the really American soldiery, but she recoiled with exquisite delicacy from even the appearance of humiliation. When therefore she heard the footsteps of a horse moving slowly up the road, she shrank timidly into a little thicket of wood which grew around the spring that bubbled from the side of a hillock near her. The vedette, for such as proved to be, passed her without noticing her form, which was so enveloped as to be as little conspicuous as possible. Humming a low air to himself, and probably thinking of some other fare that he had left on the banks of Potomac. Francis listened anxiously to the retreating footsteps of his horse, and as they died upon her ear she ventured from her place of secrecy, and advanced a short distance through the field, were startled at the gloom and appalled with the dreariness of the prospect, she paused to reflect on what she had undertaken. Throwing back the hood of her cardinal, she sought the support of a tree, and gazed towards the summit of the mountain that was to be the goal of her enterprise. It rose from the plain like a huge pyramid, giving nothing to the eye but its outline. The pinnacle could be faintly discerned in front of a lighter background of clouds, between which a few glimmering stars occasionally twinkled in the momentary brightness, and then gradually became obscured by the passing vapor that was moving before the wind, at a very distance below the clouds themselves. Should she return, Henry and the peddler would most probably pass the night in fancied security, upon the very hill towards which she was straining her eyes, in the vain hope of observing some light that might encourage her to proceed. The deliberate and what to her seemed cold-blooded project of the officer for the recapture of the fugitives still rang in her ears and stimulated her to go on, but the solitude into which she must venture 
the time, the actual danger of the ascent, and the uncertainty of her finding the hut, or what was still more disheartening, the chance that it might be occupied by unknown tenants, and those of the worst description, urged her to retreat. The increasing darkness was each moment rendering objects less and less distinct, and the clouds were gathering more gloomily in the rear of the hill, until its form could no longer be discerned. Frances threw back her rich curls with both hands on her temples, in order to possess her senses in their utmost keenness. But the towering hill was entirely lost to the eye. At length she discovered a faint and twinkling blaze in the direction in which she thought the building stood, that by its reviving and receding luster might be taken for the glimmering of a light. But the delusion vanished, as the horizon again cleared, and the star of the evening shone forth from a cloud after struggling hard, as if for existence. She now saw the mountain to the left of the place where the planet was shining, and suddenly a streak of mellow light burst upon the fantastic oaks that were thinly scattered over its summit, and gradually moved down its side until the whole pile became distinct under the rays of the rising moon. Although it would have been physically impossible for our heroine to advance without the aid of the friendly light, which now gleamed on the long line of level land before her, yet she was not encouraged to proceed. If she could see the goal of her wishes, she could also perceive the difficulties that must attend her reaching it. While deliberate in distressing incertitude, now shrinking with the timidity of her sex and years from enterprise, and now resolving to rescue her brother at every hazard, Frances turned her looks towards the east, in the earnest gaze at the clouds which constantly threatened to involve her again, in comparative darkness. Had an adder stung her, she could not have sprung with greater celerity than she recoiled from the object against which she was leaning, and which she for the first time noticed. The two upright posts with a crossbeam on their tops, and a rude platform beneath, told but too plainly the nature of the structure. Even the cord was suspended from the iron staple, and was swinging to and fro in the night air. Francis hesitated no longer, but rather flew than ran across the meadow, and was soon at the base of the rock where she hoped to find something, like a path to the summit of the mountain. Here she was compelled to pause for breath, and was improved the leisure by surveying the ground about her. The ascent was quite abrupt, but she soon found a sheep path that wound among the shelving rocks and through the trees, so as to render her labor much less tiresome than it otherwise would have been. Throwing a fearful glance behind, the dirt-termined girl commenced her journey upwards. Young, active, and impelled by her generous motive, she moved up the hill with elastic steps, and very soon emerged from the cover of the woods into an open space of more level ground that had evidently been cleared of its timber for the purpose of cultivation. But either the war or the sterility of the soil had compelled the adventurer to abandon the advantages that had been obtained over the wilderness. And already the brushes and the briars were springing up afresh, as if the plough had never traced furrows through the mould which nourished them. 
Frances felt her spirits invigorated by the faint vestiges of the labor of man, and she walked up the gentle acclivity with renewed hopes of success. The path now diverged in so many different directions that she soon saw it would be useless to follow their windings and abandoned it at the first turn. She labored forward towards what she thought was the nearest point of the summit. The cleared ground was soon passed, and the woods and rocks clinging to the precipitous sides of the mountain again opposed themselves to her progress. Occasionally the path was seen running along the verge of the clearing, then striking off into the scattered patches of grass and herbage, but in no instance could she trace it upward. Tufts of wool hanging to the briars sufficiently denoted the origin of these tracks, and Francis rightly conjectured that whoever descended the mountain would avail himself of their existence to lighten the labor. Seating herself on a stone, the wearied girl again paused to rest and to reflect. The clouds were rising before the moon, and the whole scene at her feet lay pictured in softest colors. The white tents of the militia were stretched in regular lines immediately beneath her. The light was shining in the window of her aunt, who Frances easily fancied was watching the mountain, racked with all the anxiety she might be supposed to feel for her niece. Lanterns were playing about in the stable-yard, and where she knew the horses of the dragoons were kept, and believing them to be preparing for their night march, she again sprang upon her feet and renewed her toil. Our heroine had to ascend more than a quarter of a mile farther, although she had already conquered two-thirds of the height of the mountain. But she was now without a path or any guide to direct her in her course. Fortunately, the hill was conical, like most of the mountains in that range, and by advancing upwards she was certain of at any length reaching the desired hut, which hung, as it were, on the very pinnacle. Nearly an hour did she struggle with the numerous difficulties that she was obliged to overcome, when having reached exhaustively with her efforts, and in several instances in great danger from falls, she succeeded in gaining the small piece of tableland on the summit. Faint with exertions which had been unusually severe for so slight a frame, she sank on a rock to recover her strength and fortitude of the approaching interview. A few moments suffered for this purpose when she proceeded in quest of the hut. All of the neighboring hills were distinctly visible by the aid of the moon, and Frances was able, where she stood, to trace the route of the highway from the plains into the mountains. By following this line with her eyes she soon discovered the point whence she had seen the mysterious dwelling, and directly opposite to that point she well knew the hut must stand. The chilling air sighed through the leafless branches of the gnarled and crooked oaks, as with a step so light as hardly to rustle the dry leaves on which she trod. Frances moved forward to that part of the hill where she expected to find the secluded habitation, but nothing could she discern that in the least resembled a dwelling of any sort. In vain she examined every recess of the rocks, or inquisitely explored every part of the summit that she thought could hold the tenant of the peddler. No hut nor any vestige of a human being could she trace. The idea of her solitude struck on the terrified mind of the affrighted girl, and approaching to the edge of a shelving rock, she bent forward to gaze on the signs of life in the vow. 
where a ray of keen light dazzled her eyes and a warm ray diffused itself over her whole frame. Recovering from her surprise, Frances looked on the ledge beneath her, and at once perceived that she stood directly over the object of her search. A hole through its roof provided a passage to the smoke, which, as it blew aside, showed her a clear and cheerful fire crackling and snapping on a rude hearth of stone. The approach to the front of the hut was by a winding path around the point of the rock on which she stood, and by this she advanced to its door. Three sides of this singular edifice, if such it could be called, were composed of logs laid alternately on each other to a little more than the height of a man, and the fourth was formed by the rock against which it leaned. The roof was made of the bark of trees, laid in long strips from the rock to its eaves. The fissures between the logs had been stuffed with clay, which in many places had fallen out, and dried leaves were made use of as a substitute to keep out the wind. A single window of four panes of glass was in the front, but a board carefully closed it, in such a manner as to emit no light from the fire within. After pausing some time to view this singularly constructed hiding-place, for such Francis knew it well, she applied her eye to a crevice to examine the inside. There was no lamp or candle, but the blazing fire of dry wood made the interior of the hut light enough to be read by. In one corner lay a bed of straw with a pair of blankets thrown carelessly over it, as if left where it had been last used. Against the wall and rock were suspended from pegs forced into the crevices, various garments, and such as were apparently fitted for all ages and conditions, and for either sex. British and American uniforms hung peaceably by the side of each other, and on the peg that supported a gown of striped calico, such as was the unusual country wear, was also depending a well-powdered wig. In short, the attire was numerous, and as various as if a whole parish were to be equipped from this one wardrobe. In the angle against the rock, and the opposite to the fire which was burning in the other corner, was an open cupboard and was that held a plate or two, a mug, and the remains of some broken meat. Before the fire was a table, with one of its legs fractured, and made of rough boards, these, with a single stool, composed the furniture, if we accept a few articles of cooking. A book by its size and shape appeared to be a Bible was lying on the table unopened, but it was the occupant and the hut in whom Francis was chiefly interested. This was a man sitting on the stool with his head leaning on his hand, in such a manner as to conceal his features, and deeply occupied in examining some open papers. On the table lay a pair of curiously and richly mounted horsemen's pistols, and the handle of a sheathed rapier, of exquisite workmanship protruded from between the legs of the gentleman, one of whose hands carelessly rested on its guard. The tall stature of this unexpected tenant of the hut, and his form, much more athletic than that of either Harvey or her brother, told Francis without the aid of his dress that it was neither of those she sought. A close surtout was buttoned tight in the throat of the stranger and parted at his knees, showed breeches of a buff with military boots and spurs. His hair was dressed so as to expose the whole face, 
and after the fashion of the day it was profusely powdered. A round hat was laid on the stones that formed a paved floor to the hut, as if to make room for a large map, which, among the other papers, occupied the table. This was an unexpected event to our adventurer. She had been so confident that the figure twice seen was the peddler, that on learning that his agency and her brother's escape, she did not in the least doubt of finding them both in the place where she now discovered, was occupied by another and a stranger. She stood earnestly looking through the crevice, hesitating whether to retire, or to wait with the expectation of meeting Henry, as the stranger moved his hand from before his eyes and raised his face, apparently in deep musing, when Francis instantly recognized the benevolent and strongly marked composed features of Harper. All that Dunwoody had said of his power and disposition, all that he had himself promised her brother, and all the confidence that had been created by his dignified and paternal manner, rushed across the mind of Francis, who threw open the door of the hut, and falling at his feet, clasped his knees with her arms, and she cried, "'Save him! Save him! Save my brother! Remember your promise, and save him!' Harper had risen as the door opened, and there was a slight movement of one hand towards his pistols, but it was cool and instantly checked. He raised the hood of the cardinal, which had fallen over her features, and exclaimed with some uneasiness, "'Miss Wharton, but you cannot be alone!' "'There is none here but my God and you, and by his sacred name I conjure you to remember your promise and save my brother.' Harper gently raised her from her knees and placed her on the stool, begging her at the same time to be composed and to acquaint him with the nature of her errand. This Francis instantly did, ingenuously admitting him to the knowledge of all her views in visiting that lone spot at such an hour and by herself. It was at all times difficult to probe the thoughts of one who held his passions in such discipline and subjection as Harper but still there was a lighting of his thoughtful eye and a slight unbending of his muscles as the hurried and anxious girl proceeded in her narrative. His interest as she dwelt upon the manner of Henry's escape and the flight to the woods was deep and manifest, and he listened to the remainder of her tale with a marked expression of benevolent indulgence. Her apprehensions that her brother might still be too late through the mountains seemed to have much weight with him, for... As she concluded, he walked a turn through the hut, in silent musing. Francis hesitated, and unconsciously played with the ha handle of one of the pistols, and the paleness that her fears had spread over her fine features began to give place to a rich tint, as after a short pause she added, We cannot depend much on the friendship of Major Dunwoody, but his sense of honor is so pure that, that notwithstanding his, his feelings— his desire to serve us. He will conceive it to be his duty to apprehend my brother again. Besides, he thinks there will be no danger in doing so, as he relies greatly on your interference. Oh, mine? said Harper, raising his eyes in surprise. Yes, on yours. When we told him of your kind language, he at once assured us all that you had the power, and if you had promised, would have the inclination to procure Henry's pardon. "'Said he more?' asked Harper, who appeared slightly uneasy. 
nothing but reiterated assurances of Henry's safety. Even now he is in quest of you. Miss Wharton, that I bear no mean part in the unhappy struggle between England and America, I might now be useless to deny. You owe your brother's escape this night to my knowledge of his innocence and the remembrance of my word. Major Dunwoodie is mistaken when he says that I might openly have procured his pardon. I now indeed can control his fate, and I pledge to you a word that has some influence with Washington, that means shall be taken to prevent his recapture. But from you also I exact a promise, that this interview, and all that has passed between us, remain confined to your own bosom, until you have my permission to speak upon the subject. Francis gave the desired assurance, and he continued, The peddler and your brother will soon be here, but I must not be seen by the royal officer, or the life of Birch might be the forfeiture. Never! cried Francis ardently. Henry could never be so base as to betray the man who saved him. It is no childish game that we are now playing, Miss Wharton. Men's lives and fortunes hang upon slender threads, and nothing must be left to accident that we can guard against. Did Sir Henry Clinton know that the peddler had communion with me, and under such circumstances the life of the miserable man would be taken instantly? Therefore, as you value human blood, or remember the rescue of your brother, be prudent and be silent." Communicate what you know to them both, and urge them to instantly departure. If they can reach the last pickets of our army before morning, it shall be my care. There are none to intercept them. There is better work for Major Dunwoodie than to exposing the life of his friend. While Harper was speaking, he carefully rolled up the map he had been studying, and placed it, together with sundry papers that were also open, into his pocket. He was still occupied in this manner when the voice of the peddler, talking in unusually loud tones, was heard directly over their heads. "'Stand further this way, Captain Wharton, and you can see the tents in the moonshine. Let them mount and ride. I have a nest here that will hold us both, and we will go in at our leisure.' "'And where is this nest? I confess that I have eaten but little the last two days, and I crave some of your cheer you mentioned.' <laughs> said the peddler, exerting his voice still more. Hem, this fog has given me a cold, but move slowly and be careful not to slip, or you may land on the bayonet of the sentinel on the flats. Tis a steep hill to rise, but one can go down it with ease. Harper pressed his finger on his lip to remind Frances of her promise, and taking his pistols and hat so that no vestige of his visit remained, he retired deliberately to a far corner of the hut, where, lifting several articles of dress, he entered a recess in the rock, and letting them fall again was hidden from view. Francis noticed, by the strong firelight as he entered, that it was a natural cavity and contained nothing but a few more articles of domestic use. The surprise of Henry and the peddler of entering, and finding Francis in possession of the hut, may be easily imagined. Without waiting for the explanation or questions, 
the warm-hearted girl flew into the arms of her brother and gave a vent to her emotions and tears. But the peddler seemed struck with very different feelings. His first look was at the fire, which had been recently supplied with fuel. He then drew upon a small drawer of the table and looked a little alarmed at finding it empty. "'Are you alone, Miss Fanny?' he asked in a quick voice. "'You did not come here alone?' "'As you see me, Mr. Birch,' said Frances, raising herself from her brother's arms and turning an expressive glance towards the secret cavern, and the quick eye of the peddler instantly understood. "'But why and wherefore are you here?' exclaimed her astonished brother. "'And how knew you of this place at all?' Frances entered at once into a brief detail of what occurred at the house since their departure, and the motives which induced her to seek them. But, said Birch, why follow us here, when we were left on the opposite hill? Frances related the glimpse that she had caught of the hut and the peddler, in her passage through the highlands, and as well as her view of him on that day, and her immediate conjecture that the fugitives would seek the shelter of this habitation for the night. Birch examined her features as, with open ingenuous, she related the simple incidents that had made her mistress of this secret. And as she ended, he sprang upon his feet, and striking the window with his stick in his hand, demolished it at a blow. "'Tis but little luxury or comfort that I know,' he said. "'But even that little cannot be enjoyed in safety, Miss Wharton.' He added, advancing before Francis, and speaking with a bitter melancholy, that was common to him. I am hunted through these hills like the beast of the forest, but whenever I, tired with my toils, I can reach this spot, poor and dreary as it is, I can spend my solitary nights in safety. Will you aid to make the life of a wretch still more miserable? Never! cried Francis with fervor. Your secret is safe with me. Major Dunwoody, said the peddler, slowly turning an eye upon her that read her soul. Frances lowered her head upon her bosom, for a moment in shame, then elevating her fine and glowing face, she added with enthusiasm, Never, never, Harvey, as God may hear my prayers. The peddler seemed satisfied as he drew back, and watching his opportunity, unseen by Henry, slipped behind the screen and entered the cavern. Francis and her brother, who thought his companion had passed through the door, continued conversing on the latter's situation for several minutes. When the former urged the necessity of expedition on his part in order to proceed Dunwoody, from those whom sense of duty they knew they had no escape, the captain took out his pocket-book, wrote a few lines with his pencil, then folding the paper he handed it to his sister. Francis, he said, you have this night proved yourself to be an incomparable woman. And as you love me, give that unopened to Dunwoody, and remember that two hours may save my life. I will, I will, but why delay? Why not fly and improve those precious moments? Your sister says well, Captain Wharton, exclaimed Harvey, who had re-entered unseen. We must go at once. Here is food to eat as we travel. But who is to see this fair creature in safety? cried the captain. I can never desert my sister in such a place as this. Leave me, leave me, said Francis. I can ascend as I came up. Do not doubt me. You know not my courage nor my strength. 
I have not known you, dear girl, it is true. But now, as I learn your value, can I quit you here? Never, never. Captain Morton, said Birch, throwing open the door, you can trifle with your own lives, if you have many to spare, but I have but one, and must nurse it. Do I go alone or not? Go, go, dear Henry, said Francis, embracing him. Go, remember our father, remember Sarah. She waited not for his answer, but gently forced him through the door and closed it with her own hands. For a short time there was a warm debate between Henry and the peddler, but the latter finally prevailed, and the breathless girl heard the successive plunges as they went down the sides of the mountain at a rapid rate. Immediately after the noise of their departure had ceased, Harper reappeared. He took the arm of Frances in silence and led her from the hut. The way seemed familiar to him, for, ascending to the ledge above them, he led his companion across the table and tenderly, pointing out the little difficulties in their route, and cautioning her against injury. Frances felt, as she walked by the side of this extraordinary man, that she was supported by one of no common stamp. The firmness of his stamp and the composure of his manner seemed to indicate a mind settled and resolved. By taking a route over the bl pick up. By taking a route over the back of the hill, they descended with great expedition, and but little danger. The distance it had taken Francis an hour to conquer was passed by Harper and his companion in ten minutes, and they entered the open space already mentioned. He struck into one of the sheep paths, and crossing the clearing with rapid steps, they came suddenly upon a horse, caparisoned for a rider of no mean rank. The noble beast snorted and pawed the earth as his master approached and replaced the pistols in the holsters. Harper then turned, and taking the hand of Francis, spoke as follows. You have this night saved your brother, Miss Warden. It would not be proper for me to explain why there are limits to my ability to serve him. But if you can detain the horse for two hours, he is assuredly safe. After what you have already done, I can believe you equal to any duty. God has denied to me children, young lady. But if it had been his blessed will that my marriage should not have been childless, such a treasure as yourself would I have asked from his mercy. But you are my child. All who dwell in this broad land are my children and my care, and take the blessing of one who hopes yet to meet you in happier days. As he spoke with a solemnity that touched Francis to the heart, he laid his hand impressively upon her head. The guileless girl turned her face towards him, and the hood again falling back, exposed her lovely features to the moonbeams. A tear was glistening on either cheek, and her mild blue eyes were glazed upon his reverence. Harper bent and pressed the paternal kiss upon her forehead and continued, Any of these sheep paths will take you to the plain, but here we must part. I have much to do and far to ride. Forget me in all but your prayers. He then mounted his horse and lifting his hat, rode towards the back of the mountain, descending at the same time, and was soon hid by the trees. Francis sprang forward with a lightened heart, and taking the first path that led onwards. In a few minutes she reached a plain in safety. While busied in stealing through the meadows towards the house, 
The noise of horse approaching startled her, and she felt how much more was to be apprehended from man in such situations than from solitude. Hiding her form in the angle of a fence near the road, she remained quiet for a moment and watched their passage. A small party of dragoons, whose dress was different from the Virginians, passed at a brisk trot. They were followed by a gentleman enveloped in a large cloak, whom she at once knew to be Harper. Behind him rode a black in livery, and two youths in uniform brought up the rear. Instead of taking the road that led by the encampment, they turned short to the left and entered the hills. Wondering who this unknown but powerful friend of her brother ought to be, Frances glided across the fields, and using due precautions in approaching the dwelling, regained her residence undiscovered and in safety. End of chapter 30